Hi, everyone. Thanks for listening to AOK. Before we start the episode, we just want to remind you that everyone's sexual and romantic attraction works a bit differently. What you are about to hear are opinions based on personal experience, and any descriptions of romantic or sexual orientations featured in this episode are not representative of any group. Hello, friends, and welcome to AOK, the podcast about people on the aromantic and asexual spectrums. I'm your Aeroace host, Courtney Lang, and joining us today is Vincent Scott, who is a writer. Hi. Hi. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, of course. Um, Tell me a little bit about yourself. Um, I am about to be 30. I am 29 currently, but on the 26th, I turn 30. (gasps) Ooh, happy early birthday. Oh, thank you very much. Um, and I use uh, he, him pronouns, although I'm fine with uh, they, them as well. But he, him, mainly just because that's why, the way I express. And so that's how what normally people go for. And then orientation, um, asexual and aromantic. Great. Um, what does being asexual and aromantic mean for you? Well, in the positive sense, it means that friendships and family relationships are the most important relationships in my life and that and I love platonic connection with people and platonic intimacy uh, and I just don't feel a strong desire or attraction to uh, romantic or sexual connections with other people it's just not something that I feel any need for yeah so pretty simple um, when did you figure yeah. out you were ace and arrow okay well that one's less simple <laughs> That, that was more of a process. All right, um, tell me about it. I figured out there was something, I was experiencing something different than other people experiencing in like early adolescence, mm. but it was very much a like what's happening situation. It was yes. a very much confused, like, you know, no, no language. I was in a relatively... Um, queer friendly space the high school that I went to had like an LGBTQ club but at that point the the, the acronym ended at the Q pretty much yeah uh, so I kind of went down I was like oh am I a lesbian oh that doesn't seem right am I gay am I bisexual no no trans maybe I'm trans no <laughs> you know kind of went down the list and at that point like if I ever did hear past the acronym the A stood for ally um, and so I just had never heard of the concept of asexuality and so in the way that you know the teenage brain is such a fascinating thing because you're simultaneously in this state of like screw the system but also (laughs) if I don't live up to every single standard that's being set for me by the system and the people around me I'm a failure and no one will ever talk to me again yes (laughs) so (laughs) I was very much like uh yeah I, I felt I basically just went, oh, I'm broken. Like, I, I, you know, I know that's a common refrain for a lot of people is like, I'm I'm not like this. It must be that I'm, if I'm not these things, it must be that I'm straight and I'm broken. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that wasn't fun. Uh, And I definitely, like, I pursued romantic and sexual relationships. And, you know, it was so, like, I would have, I thought for a long time attract, being attracted to someone was if you like them interpersonally, if you like talking to them and you like, you know, 
being with them and you thought they were aesthetically attractive, that was romantic and sexual attraction. Right. So I would really like chatting, you know, getting along and stuff. But as soon as things would start to get physical, as soon as things would start to get sexual, romantic gestures were very much something I would do out of a performative sense of obligation. Mm -hmm. Like I would just get very uncomfortable and I would just like, oh, I don't want this. And but uh, I felt such a sense of obligation to be the like straight man to be the hypersexual guy that I would like force myself to pursue these things that I just you know now in retrospect so obvious that I was just like oh you just didn't want those yeah it's not a big deal didn't want those things it's it's totally okay for that to be the case for you but at the time I was like no if I'm not living up again if I'm not living up to these standards then there's something wrong with me I'm broken there's something bad Right. Yeah. And so, so so you mentioned society's expectations of masculinity. So mm-hmm. w- once you started accepting and you heard the word asexual, like I might be jumping the gun here, but was, no, no, that's was probably that, the next step. OK, was that still affecting you? Definitely. It was very much a process like I was, again, kind of grew up in a little bit more of a kind of woke space, so to speak. There was definitely some feminist thought going on. But you still just you internalize so much of what's normalized mm-hmm. as a guy. And so the idea that like I was supposed to want sex, I was supposed to pursue sex and that I wasn't with something like shameful that I had to hide that I, you know, like felt this guilt about not being, you know, interested in those kinds of relationships. And I also felt like, you know, if someone expressed a sexual or a romantic attraction to me, I felt like an obligation to like, well, now I have to pursue this because that's what, (laughs) you know, that's what a straight guy would do. And then it was in college that I first heard the term asexual. It was in in LGBTQ studies class. And I remember it vividly because it was reading an article about how like we've just scratched the surface of human sexuality. And there's, you know, at this point, this was like 2010 ish, you know, even in the last 10 years, so much has happened. Um, but at that time point, the conversation was still pretty much like LGBTQ and things like polyamory and gender non-binary and, you know, demisexuality. And so I was reading down this list and there was no description. There was no definition for any of these terms. There's just, you know, these various things. And then asexual was in the middle. And I suddenly felt this like vivid, like it still took me several years to actually identify as it. But in that moment, I was like, I suddenly feel the overwhelming urge to go home and do a huge amount of research about this one particular (laughs) term. That's probably doesn't mean anything. That's not significant. Right. I spent the next several years, every once in a while, the thought would kind of like drift up from the back of my mind, like, hey, Asexual. No, 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 no. That couldn't, that couldn't be this. <laughs> you, you go back and back in that box that I'm hiding you in. Yes. And then I remember. I think it was the first year out of college. I remember it as a dark and stormy night. Although I don't remember if that's actually <laughs> what it was, or if that was just my memory of it. But I was just like, I was for some reason I was just amped up. I'd been, you know, the thought had occurred with increasing frequency, and I was pacing and pacing in this little rat hole apartment I was living in, and. I just suddenly just like whatever thing was holding on to refusing to accept this part of myself just went, it's okay. Like it's, a, you know, it's all right. You're asexual. That's okay. And it was just like this dam breaking or, you know, it's just this moment of like just profound relief. Yes. Followed by incredible fear. Yep. Because I was like, oh no, now there's a part of me because I'm, I'm a white cis guy. I'm 
you know, from a relatively like middle class, upper middle class background, like before that I was the person that society has been built in shape for. And to suddenly have this part of myself that is like, oh, this is a thing now that I have to like think about how I engage with the world in relation to this. Yeah. And of course, that was something I understood intellectually. We, you know, I, again, like growing up in circumstances where you know, talking about the experiences of other demographics and and the hierarchies and the injustices of our society. But there is a dramatic difference between understanding it intellectually and and I'll fully admit, still get a tremendous amount of privilege. I pretty much some like straight presenting, so I'm not suggesting that I suddenly understood oppression, mm-hmm. but like a little taste of it, that little appreciation of like the vulnerability that comes with having this thing that people might just arbitrarily decide that they don't like about you or that they refuse to respect about you like suddenly that's such it was such a visceral feeling of like oh now I have to make calculated decisions about like if I choose to be totally upfront and honest about this there are quite possibly going to be things that I can't do places I can't go and people who won't want to interact with me that would have before if I if I or would continue to if I lived in the closet and just like refused to acknowledge this part of me was did you feel like a sense of loss it wasn't a sense of loss exactly like the 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 sense of relief of like having the the internal enforcement of those standards inside my own head breaking and it really was like it was a slow gradual process like basically as soon as I heard the term asexual and I did go home and do a bunch of research, I basically kind of subconsciously gave myself permission to stop pursuing sexual and romantic relationships. Like that was the point where I was like, I'm not going to acknowledge why, but this right. isn't a thing I'm going to do anymore. Yeah. And having that break was just such a relief, but there was, it wasn't so much a sense of loss, uh, but more a sense of apprehension. Yes. Right. Like I was still me. I was still the person I'd always been, but suddenly the way other people might relate to me was going to be different. Yeah. And that could be, you know, potentially limit things that I wanted to do in my life. Yeah. And I feel yeah. like once you, at least for me, once I started acknowledging it uh, consciously, not only was it harder for people to relate to me, it was, it became harder and harder and harder for me to relate to other people. Like, what about mental health? Did, did mental health affect the process for you at all? Yeah. So, and this is actually interesting. It's only been in the last like eight months now. I went on antidepressants last summer. Oh, congratulations! And yeah, I, it was it was an amazing turning point in my life because I realized I'd basically been dealing with like low level chronic depression since I was in my early adolescence, and uh, it was there was such a so. Mental health, like particularly the way my depression and social anxiety would manifest was just basically all those things that I think everybody naturally feels a certain degree of anxiety around every other people, uh, you know, maybe a predisposition to thinking about like, oh, well, what's the downside? How could things turn out badly in this situation? All of that is just amped up, mm-hmm. right? It's just stronger. So I would be just utterly haunted by like minor negative social interactions yeah you know like you know some negative exchange with a with a person in a coffee shop like literally I remember in college it was finals I was just zoned out and exhausted because I was studying all the time and doing all these finals and I I went into a coffee shop to order a coffee and the person who was making my coffee I must have just been like zoned out staring at them 
which wasn't something I was consciously doing. I wasn't like trying to make them go faster or anything. I was just out of it. Right. And they kind of went like, oh, you're staring at me. And I was like, oh, sorry, I didn't mean to bother you. And I just left. And that little negative social interaction literally haunted me for years. Oh. Like I would just like come back and it would, and the re- reaction I would have when that little thing would pop and when that thought would pop into my head was like a gut punch. It was like a visceral, yes. physical feeling of like, oh my God, like I can't believe I did that, you know, as if I had done something really horrible, yeah. even though my intellectual brain is saying that's really not that big a deal. Like yep. that's why that, that shouldn't be something you're clinging to, but I couldn't <laughs> control it. And so then, you know, if you can take that idea, like extrapolate that to you're a teenager and you've got all these standards that you're applying to yourself about, you know, what you're supposed to be as a guy and, you know, what your sexuality is supposed to be and what your interaction with other people, particularly like, you know, as a straight dude, your interaction with women, you're supposed to be this certain set of things. And you're the terror that if you make some misstep, if you fail in, in living up to those standards, you could literally be haunted by it for years. Mm-hmm. And for me, it was like, again, it's, you know, something I think most people can probably relate to this to an extent, but it was like, you know, weekly on a regular basis, you know, a few times a week, I would just, again, like I got punched in the gut, like yeah. suddenly just, ugh, you know, oh my God, what a piece of crap I am. How could you do that? You know, and, and the emotional experience of someone is like, as if I had done some horrifying thing to yes. someone and it was nothing. I knew it was nothing, but yeah. I still couldn't control it. Yes. Yeah. My- and so I like to, you know, talk when I talk about like my own mental health care journey, despite the fact that I wasn't, you know, laid low by mental health issues. I think a lot of people feel like we're in this great time of the stigma coming off of mental health care, which I think is amazing. Um, But I think still a lot of people go like, if I can't, if like, if I don't have the equivalent to a broken leg, if I'm not so impacted that I can't get out of bed, then uh, it's not, then I'm fine. I don't need to go see, you know, a mental health care professional. And like, I was coping, I was functioning with depression so my depression wasn't the equivalent to a broken leg. It was more like a sprained wrist. Yeah. Like it was this constant vulnerability and pain. And I could have lived my entire life like that and been okay. I would have liked, I was still doing stuff. I was still like coping with things. But I will tell you, oh my God, is it so much better to live without a sprained wrist? Oh, I, well, like, I was going to say, you wouldn't be okay. You would be, you would, you would externally appear okay. Right. Yeah. That's the better, that's a better description. Yes. Yeah. I, I could totally have, I could it. maintain the veneer of yes. being okay. Um, the whole like logically knowing, but like emotionally not getting it. Like my therapist literally calls that your emotional brain versus your logical brain. Like, 100%. yeah. So like, you know it, but like your feelings tell you something else, even if they're wrong, but your feelings just like feel so real. Yeah. And logically, you know it's not true, but like, it they still trick you, you know. Right. And that's yeah. I totally get the like the the almost like obsessive thoughts just over and over of like something that happened forever ago. I had the same problem with a very similarly minor story that haunts me to this day, and it happened in third grade. Yeah. <laughs> and like, yeah. just like minor minor interactions like that where the other person probably doesn't even remember and did that I guess like did those anxieties were any of those around you know 
I guess, subconsciously before you heard the term asexual, like, do you think any of that fed into it? Like, you're different. There's something wrong. A hundred percent. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, again, it's like feeling like there were certain things. I mean, you know, I, I think that the way that uh, romance is depicted in fiction has a lot of issues. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I would like look at those standards of, of behavior like that's what I'm supposed to be. That's what in a relationship. That's what I'm supposed to be this, you know, strong, silent type who's, you know, not vulnerable and not, you know. And then again, like when I couldn't live up to these ludicrous standards that don't even really facilitate a good like relationship like those weren't the the times when I would feel like any kind of meaningful connection to the people that I would date or be in relationships with were the times when we were just like hanging out and we were just two people and we were like you know on those platonic levels and partially that's because again not feeling the romantic attraction but also because the the nature of like what like what you're quote unquote supposed to do to express romantic affection a lot of it has like you know, I mean, I don't know if like grand romantic gestures are nearly as much like a positive thing as people think them like because <laughs> it's this big performative thing. But how much is it actually an expression? Like, is it the most effective way of expressing your affection for another person? Even you know, if you are feeling romantic affection, maybe it is. Again, acknowledging my my own limitations <laughs> there, understanding. But I do think that it's like. You're supposed to be these things. You're supposed to, like, as a straight, as a man, as a, you know, as, as these things, you are supposed to live up to these standards and then add to that the terror that you don't live up to the standards that's going to literally could haunt you for years. Right. You know? Yes. It, it's a real tense. It ties you in knots. It yes. really ties you in knots. Yes. Um, okay. Switching gears a little bit. Uh, okay. You're... Or is there anything else you want to say about that? Um, let me think. Uh, no, I think that's, no. <laughs> I'll, I'll bring it up if I think of something, but yeah. Perfect. Okay. Stuff. Sounds like a plan. Um, so you're a history major. Mm-hmm. Or were you a history major? I, I was a history major in, in college, yeah. Okay, great. Um, why, what made you want to study history? Um, so it's really interesting. History, I think just gets taught so badly. Uh, mm-hmm. It's so much about like names and dates and remember this and remember this. And it's like this learn by rote type experience, which is just awful and useless. Yeah. And what I think the thing that I really gravitated towards, and I just happen to have a couple of really good uh, history classes in my early years at college. I'd always found it interesting when I would gotten good history that was, about like human experience and about people's like responses to things and the grand trends of history of like, you know, a new technology comes out or an economic force is at work and it changes the way people are interacting with each other, a cultural norm changes or things of that nature that you can, that are very human and you can grasp those ideas without having to memorize any dates or learn any names. Mm -hmm. And generally speaking, what I've found is as you, when you start with that, when you start with the meaning behind things, like why, what was the significance between this movement or that movement? Like, like for example, um, the queer community in America massively expanded after World War II. Uh, and the reason for this was that all these soldiers coming back 
from war who had just been in these incredible life and death situations pressed to their extremes. Some of them had figured out, oh, I really like being around guys. And some of them had been in life and death situations where it's like, you know, I, I feel this impulse and we could die tomorrow. So I'm going to act on this impulse. So a lot of these guys had figured out like, oh, I'm gay. Yeah. This had probably happened in every war. But the thing about World War II is afterwards, there was this big boom in urban manufacturing jobs. So all these guys who came back didn't have to go to their small rural communities again and be you know, back enculturated back into those contexts so they could stay in these major cities. And like, you want to know what the two major ports of entry for soldiers returning back to America at World War, at the end of World War II were? Oh, yeah, what? San Francisco and New York. Oh, shit. Yeah, that makes yeah. sense. So, of course, uh, these guys and they like none of them chose to start a community. They were just they decided, I don't want to go back to this town where I'm going to be basically socially pressured into marrying someone that right. I'm not attracted to and living this life I don't want to live. So I'm going to stay in the city and get a manufacturing job. And they would go out at night looking for what you're looking for, love, affection, sexual, you know, whatever. And they and so gradually like bars would get a reputation for like this is a bar you can go to to find that. Or, you know, certain like places, certain people would like have parties and, you know, host things. And so once you start having a group of people who are seeing each other on a regular basis and a place where they're meeting each other on a regular basis, like what do you have the foundations of? Mm -hmm. A community. Yeah. And so out of that, then you start seeing other demographics, queer women start showing up. Uh, and there's a lot of tension and a lot of, you know, internalized uh, antagonism within the queer community. It's very sad. There's some very sad time periods, especially in terms of like trans people's treatment during this period of time. Yes. But you start to see, you know, a form of unity and, you know, college students kind of find this because they're out running around looking to experiment and they find these places and go, oh my God, I feel more myself in this place than I felt anywhere else. Right. But they're also learning about society and starting to like theorize about, huh, what like philosophical, like is there a larger... <laughs> philosophical idea at work here and then you know 20 years later you get like the stonewall riots and that was a product of this buildup over the course of 20 years of people coming back and having the opportunity to form something new mm -hmm. and those kinds of forces and understanding how history works in that sense that these like these opportunities and these the very human nature of history i think is really amazing and notice that I didn't really give you any dates or any names. And if you wanted to delve deeper into it, eventually the dates do become useful as you start getting into it enough that you're like, okay, I need to know the order of things relatively more specifically or this person's contribution versus this person's contribution. And that's wonderful if you find some particular area of history interesting enough that you want to get there. But we teach it backwards. We're like, okay, you got to learn these dates and you got to learn these names. Yeah. And I was like, that's not the stuff that's going to initially grip people. We want to feel... You know, now you can go like, oh, wow, this accident of fate, this weird little quirk that, you know, World War Two, these soldiers coming back. That's what creates the original foundations of the queer community. And that's why, like, San Francisco and New York are two of the major hubs of the queer community in America is just yeah. this weird little accident of historical fate. Oh, my God, that's fascinating. I love that. I agree. OK, so I hated history my whole life until I had one good teacher and I yeah. was like, holy shit, history is the best. It is. It's amazing. I mean, it's story, like when you approach it from a very like humanist level, when you approach it, when you're trying to start with like 
the people in these moments and how they were feeling and the things that were driving them and the things that were motivating them, the connections they felt to each other. And like those kinds of very like those are the things that gravitate at most people towards fiction. Mm -hmm. And those are the things that gravitate most people in their own personal lives. Then you kind of realize, oh, the names and dates, they're tools to help us. Once you've got enough of that information and you need to start organizing it, then you can start applying names and dates and that becomes useful. Right. But don't start that way because it's like it's like giving people a bunch of, of folders with nothing in them and being like, <laughs> you have to memorize the order these folders go in. It's like, yeah, that's so that's such a good metaphor um, or analogy or whatever it's called. It's um, what are is there anything in history that like you wish? I mean, there's so much in history that you wish could be different, but like specifically to these types of trends, like what would have been, I guess, interesting to see disappear, like more accepted, I guess. Um, well, I guess the, what I would like to see, and I think this is something that I think the queer community is grappling with right now is a shift away from external qualifiers that you have to meet mm -hmm. in order to be considered, you know, an acceptable member of the community and a shift more towards the internal experience of people because people are going to have different experiences. People are going to want different things and making sure that our standards are really based in like pragmatic necessity. I think there's so much like, I mean, the obvious examples is you go to like biblical texts and you're like reading about, Oh, this isn't allowed and this isn't allowed. And you know, Leviticus saying that, you know, get people being gay is wrong. It also said you should touch pigskin yes. or that if you wore two different kinds of cloth, you should be stoned to death in the village square. Like there's, right. there, there are a lot of rules and standards and maybe some of them, you know, maybe the reason why they were so uptight about shellfish at the time is there was some bacterial infection that people were catching a lot of and it right. was dangerous and maybe it made some kind of sense then. But I think that the sanctifying of tradition, not to say that I think tradition is always bad, but the like sanctifying it as this thing you can't question. And it's that, that something being traditional is a justification in and of itself. I think is a real problem yes. because a lot of times even, you know, a lot of traditions are just bad and even traditions that maybe were good at one point can become bad over time as the context changes, right. as, you know, the experience changes and, you know, the way people are living shifts. Yes. Uh, just because something's old doesn't mean it's right. 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 Yeah. That You see that a lot with like medicine too, like old tricks to get rid of things like people are like well like humans have been doing this forever so it must work like that's definitely not logical right yeah wow you're so knowledgeable about so many things i can definitely see why <laughs> you're a writer um that's very kind ludicrously <laughs> flattering thank you um but so speaking of being a writer you have a book coming out um, i do right yeah. is it so can you tell me a little bit about that Sure. Um, so the book is comedy sci-fi. Um, I've been describing it as sort of uh, like Snow Crash meets Discworld. Okay. So yeah, it's kind of like a little cyberpunky. It's a little bit in the future. Um, things haven't gone like it's not dystopian, but things haven't gone great. Like basically, <laughs> I'm assuming assuming we continue on our current trend. This is what I think the future might look like, and. Um, and just like, yeah, making fun of ourselves again as a bunch of jumped up little hominids on a rock in space. Right. You know, yeah. uh, the ways that it's it's very much uh, so there's an ace protag and uh, one of the supporting characters is also asexual. Nice. And it's very much um, 
like found family and and taking care of each other the dehumanizing aspect of oh, modern my capitalism favorite. <laughs> um yeah big, you know evil corporations doing evil things for profit <laughs> and uh yeah and it's you know i i'm very proud of it it's got you know it's got australian golden retriever bounty hunters and a four-handed assassin Ooh. and some fbi agents that are very co- emotionally codependent <laughs> and yeah it's uh, I, yeah, I'm very proud of it. And it's, yeah, I think for me, the best kind of fiction is fiction that tackles real stuff and tackles themes that we have to deal with in our lives and emotional struggles that we have to deal with in our lives, but makes it fun or makes it, you know, an, an adventure mm-hmm. to deal with those things that can sometimes feel a little bit like a chore, you know, but talking about like corporate policy and how corporations can dehumanize us can get very tedious. Yes. When you're just talking about it in a sort of systemic way, but when it's a fun adventure and you're like going around, there's a you know villain to defeat, and you're <laughs> it, you know you're you're getting to root for these characters who who love each other and are are want to protect each other. It you can still think about those things, but it's more fun. Again, it's the same premise I have with history. It's like start with the human connection, start with the the emotional experience and the the people, and then work your way to the, the you know more like the minutia and the and the uh, you know more tedious aspects of life. You got to get there eventually because sometimes they're really important. But yeah. let's start with the good stuff. Yes, let's start with the good stuff. Um, was having an ace protagonist a conscious choice or was it kind of natural? It was. So I wrote several books that never got anywhere before, and they all never had an explicit ace protag. Um, I. I think it was still me like coming, accepting myself. And partly it was that I was like writing these stories while I was still partially in the closet or, you Mm -hmm. know, like still like, so there would be characters who was like, yeah, you could definitely get an ace read on this character. Um, But it wasn't explicit. It wasn't something I was consciously talking about. And it really was just like kind of coming into my own in terms of finding my voice and the things that I wanted to talk about. Uh, with fiction and figuring out this is the first book that is there definitely were funny characters before but this is the first book where I went explicitly comedy I'm gonna I'm gonna delve into I don't know why it took me so long to figure that out it's like some of my favorite <laughs> writers are like you know Terry Pratchett and Douglas Adams yes. and you know oh comedy God, yes. genre fiction authors um, but striving to do that and that was so terrifying uh, that also that going like okay so writing an ace protagonist that was like that felt like manageable fear, I guess. Uh-huh. After writing so many books where I was like hiding that and or it would be in the background, or even the most cringeworthy and embarrassing moments where I would try to write romantic and sexual relationships that I just didn't like I was just like going through the motions of like this is what other writers write. And it was like <laughs> this is not true to me at all. Like it's again, love you know, romance and sexual attraction, those are wonderful things if you're feeling them. If you're not feeling them, you're probably going to write pretty stilted, pretty, you know, inhuman feeling sequences that involve them when you try to write them because you're not feeling that. You're not. Right. That, that's not something you're really relating to on a human level. Exactly. Um, yeah. And so it was definitely a conscious choice in that, like, I was aware that I was, you know, that I, it, it's something it's very much like the characters happen to be asexual. There's a couple of little sequences that talk specifically about asexuality, but that's not really the focus of the story. Mm-hmm. But it was just sort of 
you know, this is a thing. This is a thing that never gets represented. And I can speak at least to my own experience of it. And so why not? Why not tell this story? And it was very terrifying and very emotionally raw, but overwhelmingly has been a positive experience. And like, I found out like some people in my life who I didn't think were ace or on the ace spectrum, found out they were on the ace spectrum and, you know, managed to like, because, you know, I gave them the book and they're like, hey, you know, actually, I'm over here. I'm like this and that. And it's like, oh, that's like very possible. Oh, my Never God. That that's Yeah, that's so great. Holy yeah. shit. What, how did that feel? It feels like I mean, obviously, it's just validating. Like I go to a, an ace group in Seattle where we like meet. I, you had uh, John Arrow on yes. the podcast uh-huh. uh, and. Yeah, he's he attends the same group. I think actually he was the one who recommended your podcast to me. Oh, and, nice. Yeah, and the the feeling of validation of just being in a room full of people where someone says something like, "Ah, oh, I always thought this thing was broken about me," or "I always felt this way," and just have a whole room full of people go, "Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that I know what you're talking about, 100% that." Right is so amazing and then to also have that in your personal life with people you've known for a long time uh and it's like yeah you suddenly have these like connections to people that felt that that just feel deepened by that that you know suddenly it's like oh this again i think we ignore i think even people who are like fits you know social norms and, and fit the kind of normative cultural uh like dynamics don't realize how restrictive like even small parts of them, right? right? Like even if you're if you're a you know straight person, but like once in a while you feel a little bit of sexual attraction to someone of the opposite sex. Luckily, I think we've gotten to a point where that's starting to break down and be better. But for a long time, just expressing like, "Oh, that person's cute," would have been like you'd be socially vilified for that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and that kind of restriction is I mean, it's suffocating and being around other people and actually looking another human being in the face who's like oh yeah I, I feel these same things and I accept you for who you are it's so amazing and so yeah like having that happen with like people I actually knew in my life was really awesome oh my god I have such similar experiences of like people I've known that I never knew were ace or arrow um until i did the podcast um yeah and it's just like such a crazy feeling like i think in the moment when i find out like i'm a little overwhelmed um because it hits me so hard (laughs) like i have um this one friend who i have a distinct memory of uh, smoking on a porch and very nonchalantly being like yeah i've been listening to your podcast and like i'm pretty sure i'm aromantic or like somewhere on the aero spectrum and i acted so casual but like in my like I was actually trying not to cry (laughs) yeah you just want to like hug them and squeeze them and be like oh my god yeah exactly um that's such a great feeling um are so are there any like do you ever write aromantic characters well, I'm Aero as well, and so like the characters in this book, would, I would also describe as aromantic. Like, oh, the, awesome! Yeah, yeah. Like aromanticism was such a fascinating journey for me, just because like I figured out the asexual thing because there was such a like a physical like I, this isn't a thing that I want to pursue. Yes. And so then I kind of like went well, then I definitely want romantic relationships, and I'm realizing over time like oh no, what I want is connection. What I yeah. want is commitment and 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 I want, you know, I want a circle of people who care about me and I care about them when we look out for each other. 
I don't really feel a strong urge for it to be romantic. Oh my God, yes. I prefer it not to be romantic. (laughs) Yes. But it was such a, it was like in comparison to the asexuality, which was this stormy night where it suddenly broke, it was this gradual realization, partly because those standards had already been broken down by the first realization. Um, And yeah, so I, these characters in this book are very much to, you know, kind of, like they're they're just friends, and I, I do want to at some point write a story where I kind of talk a little bit more expi- explicitly about like queer platonic connections. Ooh, yeah. Um, but in this one, I would say they, it's, that's never explicit, but that's kind of what they are to each other. They are a circle of friends who, who love each other and look out for each other and support each other in their lives, and you know facilitate each other's well-being. And they're not there's not really a romantic or, or sexual dynamic to them. They are you know. It's, it's platonic love is the defining love of the book. Oh for... my God. You're making me want to read this so bad. Um, when does it, <sighs> when does it come out and what is it called actually? It's called the hereafter bites bites like uh, B Y T E S like uh, bits of information. Ooh, wait, how do you spell the whole thing? Okay. The hereafter, like here and after, but one word. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, and bites the the main character dies in the first chapter, <laughs> oh, well, <laughs> which I know would seem like spoiler. normally that's a real problem. <laughs> spoiler. <laughs> but yeah, the main character it, it's in a futuristic world where you can digitally reproduce a person. Oh. So the main character is a digital copy of his biological self who passes away in the first chapter, and so the story takes place. He's kind of he lives partially part of his life in the internet and part of his life in the physical world. And as you could probably tell, there's a lot of like metaphor of nerdy kid who spends <laughs> a lot of time on the internet. You know? Oh my God, I love it so much. Okay, Hereafter Bites. That sounds yeah. amazing. And when does it come out? That we're doing a Kickstarter on March 11th to raise funds to actually do a publishing, like full publishing push, which will happen sometime later in the summer. Oh so my God, March okay. 11th, Okay, great. And this episode will probably come out March 13th. So perfect, perfect timing. Um, everybody go to the Kickstarter. Where can you, they find your Kickstarter? Uh, it will be, uh, yeah, just Kickstarter. And if you just search for the Hereafter Bites, um, you can also go on Twitter. I'm at write it owl down, owl like the bird. Oh, uh, that's so and, cute. Yeah, and I will be uh, tweeting about it like crazy when it's happening. So okay, write it owl it. down. Yeah. I love that. I have one more question for you. It's important. Oh, right, right. Oh, man. This is, you sent this question to me, and I was like, this is the <laughs> stumper of all of these questions. Yes. Um, who is someone important to you? Oh, see, it's not that I don't have people <laughs> who are important to me. It's that there are so many. And how do I pick? You right. Know, yep. Fictional characters that shape me to people who shape my life to, you know, I uh, so much. Yep. Um let me think here. Okay. Like, literally, I was thinking about this a bunch. And I was like, I'll do this. No, no, no. I'm not. <laughs> um, so I'm going to throw out one. Just I'll plug something that I think is is worth uh, engaging in. Say, say somebody out there is listening and you like some of the conversation about, like, toxic masculinity and unpacking that. A lot of my realizations about that came from Bell Hooks, um, who is a feminist philosopher. She's awesome. And uh, I read a bunch of her work, and one of the books she's written is called The Will to Change. And it is this really um, frank but very empathetic analysis of this sort of the like 
what happens to uh, boys when they're told at three, four, five, you know, come on, be a man, stop crying. What happens when they're in their adolescence and they're being told, like, you know, no, you can't, like, get validation from other people because if you need anyone else to ever, like, make you feel better because you're feeling insecure, that means you're a weakling, right? Like, this, the cumulative process of that kind of emotional hobbling mm -hmm. over the course of growing up and how then that translates into, again, like, a lot of toxicity and a lot of harm being done to other people by people who are, by these guys who are so, like, a perfect example of this is like think about how the internet can be such a shitstorm all the time. Sorry, I'm just <laughs> it's hard to communicate how bad the internet can be sometimes without a little bit of profanity. I mean, you're—I've been swearing this whole time, so you're fine. <laughs> all right, cool. um, Bell Hooks: The Will to Change. So good. It's one of those books where you'll read it and you'll be like, like you knew it all already, but she just expresses it so well. Right. so effectively and and so i think i've read her also um where we're at is her book on class um she also wrote um ain't i a woman which is her book on the intersection between women of color and uh sexism in our society she's like a really i think truly one of the most important philosophers of our time and so even though there were so many i was going to talk about like the gear uh, the gear <laughs> the, the jungle book i was going to talk about my mom i love my mom she's awesome. <laughs> But I figure I'll, maybe some people will go out and read uh, The Will to Change. And if you are a guy who's working through some toxic masculinity stuff, or if you're a person who has to deal with guys that are working through toxic masculinity stuff, yes. it's a good read. It's very accessible, quick, and it's a good one. Okay, maybe I should. I'll, maybe I'll just lay that around my dad's house and hopefully that he <laughs> fixes it. <laughs> Although he's yeah, never read. Never a, know. He, he's read one book in his life, so. Oh yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, that's all I have for you. Those are all great answers. Um, thank you so much. Thank you. This yes. So yes, it's been a blast. Um, and as always, thank you to Uberkick for the use of their song A-OK, -okay, to Tanner Grayler for creating our cover art, to Sophie Lalonde for editing and producing this episode, and to our amazing patrons at patreon.com slash A-OKpod. I'll be back next week with another guest, but until then, I'm Courtney Lang. And I'm Vincent Scott. And we, we are a-okay. Thanks for asking anyway.